I'd invite you to turn now in your Bibles to Mark chapter 9. Our scripture reading is the first uh, 13 verses of this chapter. Reading from the ESV translation, Mark chapter 9, beginning with verse 1. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come and to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. I would also invite your attention to 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 21. It's Peter's comment and commentary on this event of the transfiguration. Peter writes these words, 2 Peter 1, beginning at verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain, and we have a prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, that Holy Spirit who inspired Scripture of old is that same Holy Spirit that we request to work in us now, to understand your word, 
to be able to have its truths penetrate deeply into our minds and hearts so that in obedience to the word and by the sanctifying power of your word, we might ever grow more and more into the likeness of Christ, that we may demonstrate in our lives that we are truly disciples living for your glory, that we might see our mission to be that of being salt and light even to this generation. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Now this morning I want to mention that there are two sermons here. There's the historical sermon, and then there's the theological sermon. The historical sermon is what we're going to focus on today, basically covering what goes on in this passage. And then there's the theological sermon, which we find given to us in terms of what Peter has written in 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning at verse 16. Because there we have the inspired commentary on the significance of this passage, the transfiguration of Jesus, from the standpoint of redemptive history, and how it impacted the apostles' lives in terms of their witness and testimony. Now, we're just going to do the historical sermon this week. And when I return on the 30th, we'll continue and look at this passage again from the standpoint of what Peter tells us to open up our minds and hearts to an incredible significance of what the transfigure was, what, what it meant to the apostles during this time in, in their lives, as well as in terms of redemptive history. So this morning we're just going to look at this passage, we're going to do the historical sermon, and we're going to look at seven significant aspects of what goes on here. We might call them seven events, seven things which happen that are important, that give us lessons about our lives as Christians. I also say this, that I do everything I can when I do a sermon to outline the text. Uh, sometimes... Uh, the outlines that come up when you attempt to outline a historical passage would be something like this. Going up the mountain. On the mountain. Coming down the mountain. Now, I couldn't do any better than that in terms of outlining this passage, and I went and checked one of my resources there because there's a great thing, there's a great book I have on the Bible outlined, every passage outlined. Okay, so what can I come up with? Surely somebody has a better outline. Ascending the mountain. The time on the mountain. Descending from the mountain. Well, recognizing that, I thought, okay, I'm just going to do something a little bit different. I'm just going to walk us through the passage, event by event by event, and just try to pull out some of the lessons that we have as Christians with respect to what is going on here. So the very first lesson we can drive or the first significant event is the selection of, of, of Peter, James, and John by Jesus uh, to go with him up on the mountain. Now this is the second time that Jesus has selected these three men for a very special kind of happening that he doesn't invite the others to participate in and he also more or less uh, invites them to be quiet about it. Back at the end of chapter 5, uh, Jairus has a 12-year-old daughter, and she dies. And Jesus gets there just after she has died. And they basically are saying things like, you know, if you had been here, you might have been able to do something. And Jesus selects Peter, James, and John. They go into the inner chamber with the parents where the daughter is. And Jesus raises her from the dead. A very significant event that Jesus doesn't share with all the disciples but just Peter, James, and John. 
And now, again, we have this second situation. It's occurring in the context of, of about a week after uh, Peter has made the confession, you are the Christ, and Matthew tells us that it's, it's more than just that statement, you are the Christ, but it's you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus responds by saying, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven, and blessed are you, Peter. And that whole passage about, because upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Well, remember that Peter then, uh, here's Jesus talking about the fact that he's going to be uh, experiencing much suffering and, and rejection by the scribes and the Pharisees and that he's going to be put to death. And Peter's response to that is, no, Lord, he takes him aside. This shall never be. And, of course, then uh, uh, Jesus, uh, talking to Peter, looks at the rest of the disciples and said, Get thee behind me, Satan, for you have the things of men and not the things of God in mind. And, of course, learning all of that, we see that, that, that Peter didn't understand the necessity of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and Jesus' comments there are hammering home the fact that there's no Christianity without the cross of the Lord Jesus. But then uh, uh, Jesus goes on to say to all of those, to his disciples and the others, that, that strong message, that if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Hitting us with the power of the point that without our taking up our cross, there is no Christianity in our lives. We can't be Christians without the cross. Now, all of that is a prelude to verse 1, where Jesus talks about how if you don't take up your cross, if you are ashamed of me, when I come on my day, I will be ashamed of you. And then Jesus says, Truly I say to you, some are standing here who will not taste death, until they see the kingdom of God after has come with power. Well, that, that verse, verse 1, and the Peter passage and the transfiguration, that's what we're doing in the next sermon. All that build up to say, I'm not going to talk about it now. But back to what happens in terms of this event of selecting then Peter, James, and John. What's nice about it or wonderful about it or reassuring about it is Peter, having blown it so badly, is still selected by Jesus to be part of that special group within the disciples who are given more revelation and consequently preparation for more responsibility. Because if you understand apostolic history, you recognize the fact that James, the James mentioned here, is the first martyr of the apostles. Stephen was the first martyr among the deacons. James is the first martyr among the apostles. He was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And, and, and in that leadership, Herod, in order to please the Jews, put him to death. At the same time, had Peter arrested, and then Peter had that miraculous angelic deliverance out of prison. And then you watch the ministry of, of Peter move out of Jerusalem because the persecution by the Jews was so strong. But you know, what is the trajectory of, of Peter's life? Persecution will follow him all the way to Rome and he will die being crucified. He refuses to be crucified upright because he says, I'm not worthy to be crucified like my Savior Jesus 
and they crucified him upside down. John, uh, he lives out his life completely. But it also was not without persecution and hardship because we read in the beginning of the book of Revelation that he's exiled to the island of Patmos. These three men are three of the most significant leaders in the apostolic church beside the Apostle Paul. And we know about all the persecutions and hardships of the Apostle Paul. But the point is here. For the Jerusalem church, for the first few years, as the church is going to be intensely persecuted by the Jews who don't believe in Jesus, it is absolutely essential that these men have invincible conviction that Jesus is who he says he is. And even before the cross, even in the journey from now to Jerusalem, God is giving them this revelation so that they know absolutely what is happening. We must obey Jesus because this is what God is doing, even though they did not understand it. The fact that they couldn't understand rising from the dead indicates that they did not understand why Jesus had to suffer until after Jesus was risen from the dead. So this selection of these three men reminds us that, that God chooses certain men for special leadership in the apostolic story, but those whom he chooses, he also credentials with reasons for their faith to be invincible. Can you believe that after these men go through what they go through on the mount, that they could ever really doubt that Jesus was who he said he was and who they had come to believe? Now, the second event that we see is, is the fact that Jesus is transfigured. This is the latter part of verse 2, the first part of verse 3. And, and we notice, uh, as we're reading this, that this transfiguration moves his clothing to a, a, a radiance and an intensity of whiteness that, that no one on earth could ever bleach anything this white. It's, it's almost like Moses coming down off Mount Sinai when his whole face was so radiant that he had to put a veil over his face because no one could really look at it. So what would this say to the disciples? What would this radiance say well, it would speak to them of celestial glory. Uh, it, it would speak to them of purity. It would speak to them of, of, of light that is so intense that you can't really look at it. Uh, you know, in the Old Testament and into the New Testament, when the angels of God appear, we're reminded that the glory of the Lord shines round about them. And when we think about the, the Christmas announcement, the shepherds were, as we Remember from the King James, they were sore afraid, terrified by this. I want you to contrast what's going on here with some Sunday school pictures we have. How many of you remember Sunday school pictures where Jesus was routinely clothed in a white robe? Not so. White robes were, in fact, uh, almost useless if you were going to be living the way that, that, that New Testament people lived. They would be absolutely filthy. You could not wash these garments every day. And so the visual appearance, if you wore a white robe after about 25 minutes out on the dusty roads of Galilee, would be just besmeared. It would look unsightly. And so the clothing was often black. Things were often dyed black or dark colors. So imagine that. 
the likelihood that Jesus had a black robe rather than a white robe. And now it, it changes from black to, to white. And imagine what it must have been like for this transfiguration to happen. We're not told that it was instantaneous, so even if it gradually took place over a few seconds, just imagine what this would have done in terms of the disciples' impression and experience and feeling. They would have seen Jesus changing right in front of their eyes to the glory which he possessed with the Father before the world began. Now, I want us to appreciate something here. These three experience the glory of God in the face of Christ historically. The Apostle Paul says that if you're a genuine Christian, you have experienced the glory of God in the face of Christ in your heart. Listen to what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul is saying that the authentic and genuine and true experience of everyone who's truly a Christian is that we see the glory of God in Christ. Because we know from Scripture's testimony, we know because of a spirit-born faith that Jesus Christ is the radiance of God's glory and He's the exact imprint of His nature and that Jesus Christ upholds all things by the word of His power. That this is the one and the only Son from the Father full of grace and truth. Paul also goes on in 2 Corinthians to say this, this which we have of Christ, he calls it a treasure. And he says we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. So even if we are afflicted in every way, we will not be driven to despair. Even if we are perplexed, we will not... Even if we are afflicted in every way, we will not be crushed. Even if we are perplexed, we will not be driven to despair. Even if we are persecuted, we will not be forsaken. And we might be struck down, but we can never be destroyed because in our hearts, God has shown the light of His glory in the face of Jesus Christ. What God did historically, He then does truly experientially in the life of every Christian. Now, the third event of significance is that Elijah and Moses appear. We see this in verse 4. And what's interesting about this is the Greek itself indicates not just that they talked, but they had a prolonged conversation. Mark doesn't tell us what it's all about. Luke does. It's really an interesting thing to look into Luke's passage and see. And although Luke is brief, it says that Moses and Elijah were talking to Jesus about his, in the Greek it says, about his exodus, which was to occur at Jerusalem. 
And that term there in the Greek language, exodus, reflects the exodus back in the Old Testament when God delivered the the Israelites out of the bondage to Egypt. There was a definite connection there. The whole theme of redemption is involved in what Moses and Elijah are speaking to Jesus about and what Jesus is speaking to them about. We've asked the question, well, why these two men? Why Moses? Why Elijah? Well, because in them we have a representation of the entire Old Testament. Moses is the representative of the law. Again and again, the Old Testament, as well as Jesus' words and the apostles' words, speak of the law as the law that was given through Moses. And the Jews understood that of all the prophets, the greatest prophet was Elijah. Because no other prophet, after he finished his ministry, ever had a chariot of fire come down from heaven to pick him up while he was alive and translate him to glory. So these two were considered the greatest figures of all the Old Testament in terms of God's revelation of his word to his people. These men come. These men talk with Jesus. These men talk about Jesus' exodus in which he's going to accomplish the redemption of his people. Now, think about what the apostles got out of this experience. And and this is helpful for us because we sometimes maybe miss some things that Scripture is revealing to us about this life and the life to come. This passage is concrete proof that there is real life and real experiences and real relationships, and they happen in the afterlife in heaven. Do you think this is the first time Moses and Elijah had met each other? I mean, if that had happened, if they'd showed up, Moses would be looking around and go, who are you? And Elijah was saying, yeah, who are you? No! It's very clear that, that, that this is a representation of the fact that in the life to come, that life is real. And I adopt C.S. Lewis's perspective on this. The realities of the next life are far more real than the realities of this life. Because the things which are eternal have a greater weight of glory and realness and presence and existence than all the things which are temporal. They've traveled together. I don't know how long it took them to go from heaven to earth. It might have been an instantaneous thing. You know, we have these Star Trek ideas that somehow beam them up, Scotty. Beam them down, God. I don't know, but clearly they're coming together. And and don't you think they may have had some conversation prior to coming down to talk with Jesus? Because they're having, though we're not party to what all that is said, they're having the most significant theological discussion in all of redemptive history. No conversation on earth ever surpassed this conversation about the significance of the person and work of Jesus Christ. The apostles are also learning that during this time of redemptive history, the events of earth and the events of heaven are more closely connected than we have ever realized. 
it's often the case we have this idea that once we die and go to heaven, we're not going to know anything about earth. Well, why? Well, because we've got that statement in Revelation that every tear is going to be wiped away, no longer any pain, any sorrow, anything like that. Well, I don't know how all that works out. But this I do know that Scripture tells us, as it does in chapter 12 of Hebrews, that we run our race before so great a cloud of witnesses, and that great cloud of witnesses are what's described in chapter 11 of the book of Hebrews, who are all the great Old Testament saints who died without having received all the promises, but now they are great witnesses to the life that's going on here on earth as they see the promises fulfilled in Jesus Christ and worked out in terms of history. We also need to realize that the book of Hebrews tells us that angels are all ministering spirits sent out to those who will inherit salvation. Heavenly creatures coming down to earth to be involved some ways, many ways we can't see, but to be involved in our lives ministering to us in ways that we won't know until we come to heaven. Jesus has said, every time a sinner repents, the angels rejoice in heaven. Heaven and earth are far closer connected than you ever can imagine. And then think about this. Uh, we, we sometimes would think, wow, Moses died 1,500 years before Jesus came. Uh, Elijah was taken to heaven 850 years before Jesus came, and their work was finished. This passage tells us that they died and went to heaven, lived and went to heaven in Elijah's case, and their redemptive role was not finished. God had yet planned for them to come back into human history at this particular time to have this conversation with the Son of God and to talk about the glory and necessity of His going to the cross. That's a rather amazing thought. When God called them to heaven, God had this further work for them to do. In other words, they were to come back to earth. Well, for whose sake? Was it for Jesus' sake? Was it for their own sake? We could speculate, did Jesus need this conference to bolster his faith? I doubt it. Did, did Moses and Elijah need this to somehow fill in the gaps for them? I doubt it. But did the disciples need this? Can you imagine what it would have been like for Peter, James, and John to be there and to hear this conversation and to see the Old Testament witnesses of Moses and Elijah talking about this that's going to happen with Jesus? Clearly, they did not understand it till after the resurrection, but they heard it then. And to what point? That the entire Old Testament witness centers on and focuses on the Lord Jesus Christ. God pulls Moses out of the afterlife into this world. God pulls Elijah out of this, the afterlife into this world so that the disciples 
Peter, James, and John would see these men talking to Jesus about the great work that he was going to do so that their grasp of these things, if not now, then later, would be absolutely invincible. And they would know that when Jesus says that the Scriptures have spoken of me, that they would have had Moses and Elijah's testimony to that as well. Invincible credibility. Now, also notice, though, that it's not just the case that um, Peter doesn't get it, James doesn't get it, John doesn't get it at this particular point. It's, it's, it's after the resurrection. It's that they finally understand all of this. But, but notice the fourth significant event. Peter's reaction is a reaction, a reaction in terror. In verses 5 and 6, we have Peter suggesting that he build a tent And the word there means a sacred tent, a tabernacle for Jesus and for Moses and Elijah. And and Mark records the fact that Peter didn't really understand what he was saying. Why? Because he was terrified. His speech comes out of terror. The transfiguration of Jesus before his eyes the appearance of Moses and Elijah in celestial glory absolutely triggered in him the deepest fear. But we cannot conclude that this terror that they felt was any kind of evil or in any way a harmful experience. For Peter himself affirms in the context here, It is good that we are here. Now, Peter wasn't a thrill seeker. But he's expressing something of deepest significance in terms of of what God is revealing at this point, which he has often revealed through the Scriptures. Every account in Scripture where God appears in His glory, His people are struck with fear. When God comes down to the top of Mount Sinai, We read from the book of of Hebrews, indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. The terror, though, does not harm the believer. It does the believer the greatest kind of good. Because this true fear of God saves us and delivers us from ever having a low or casual or dishonoring view of God. The plague on the evangelical church today is when Jesus becomes such a bosom body that our exalted, almighty, heavenly Father becomes just a big daddy, a teddy bear of a God. That's not the God of the Scriptures. That's the God of shallow religious experience and thinking. Jesus taught us, and we should not ever not pause at this, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed 
is your name. Your name is holy. And it's the holiness of God, when God's glory appears, it's the holiness of God that sends people into a state of fear. Because God is what we are not in terms of His essential goodness and almighty goodness and infinite goodness. And in His presence, we know we are not. It's why in the sixth chapter of the book of Isaiah, when Isaiah has this vision of God high and lifted up and seated upon His throne, he says, Woe is me, for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. And I have seen the Lord of glory. Christians who have seen the glory of God in the face of Christ understand that we may need to live our lives in light of the holiness of this God. That He is always the God of reverence, always the God of fear, always the God that we esteem in a way that we esteem no one else and nothing else. The fifth event is, is the cloud and the voice, 7 and 8. There's a significance to the presence of a cloud coming down because God manifested himself often in the Old Testament in terms of the cloud. That's how he led Israel. It was the Shekinah glory, the cloud by day, which provided them a wonderful covering with respect to the heat of the uh, desert sun, and then the pillar of fire by night. But here the cloud comes in, which would have said to Moses, would have said to, to Peter and James and John, well, I'm not sure exactly what it would have said, but as soon as the voice spoke, they would have understood this is the same thing that happened to the Israelites in the wilderness. This is the presence of God. This is the Shekinah glory. But what is significant is what comes out of the cloud. What manifests itself is God's voice. God speaks. Two things to appreciate. This is the third witness then to Jesus. Moses Elijah, and now God the Father Himself speaks. Direct revelation, right then. Direct revelation like Hebrews talks about. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers. This is the bedrock of the Christian faith. God is real, and God has spoken. The Christian faith is not a bunch of ideas that some people made up about God. Here is the ultimate authority about all things upon which Christians could ever speak with confidence. God has spoken. It's in the Scriptures. Therefore, that is our final authority for all things in life, all things in faith, all things for us. Second, closely, follows from this. All of the Old Testament revelation, everything represented by Moses and Elijah is now summed up and fulfilled in Jesus. 
Because the voice says to Peter, James, and John, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Now, the words there, listen to him, would have immediately in their minds connected back to Deuteronomy chapter 18. Because back in Deuteronomy, in that passage where Moses begins to talk about successors and other prophets to come, this is what he said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And God the Father, who inspired Deuteronomy 18.15, is now echoing those terms. And he's saying, this is the prophet. This is my son. Listen to him. Christ, the Lord Jesus, the final, the ultimate, the necessary, the sufficient, the objective word of God. So there's no inconsistency, no difference between whatever the Son says and whatever the Father has said. There's no contradiction, no inconsistency between what the Father said before Jesus came and what Jesus says when He comes. Therefore, all of the Scriptures, the Old Testament, the New Testament, it all sums up in Christ, which tells us then there is one Bible, there is one message, there is one gospel. There is one salvation. And every one of us as Christians must listen to Jesus as He speaks to us out of His Word. He is our Lord. He commands it. He owns our lives. We are His. We're called to follow Him. Now, in response to this, Jesus commands silence. It's interesting. He tells the disciples as they come down the mountain, now you know we're in the third part, down the mountain. <laughs> Point three, down the mountain. <laughs> you know that, that, that what Jesus is doing here in telling Peter, James, and John, don't speak of this. Now there's a couple of reasons. First, don't speak of this because you do not yet fully understand it. And if they were to have spoken of it, they would have misinterpreted it. But also, even if they were to have spoken of it in terms of what actually happened, the idea that God and Moses and Elijah were there on the mountain with Jesus, it would have made things far more complicated for the public ministry of Christ if this became news of something incredible happening up on the mountain. Practical reason. We already have talked about the mounting hostility of the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians against Jesus. That would only have further escalated if this kind of story had gotten out. This would have brought even further complications to the public ministry of Christ, which we have seen in earlier of the stories of Mark's gospel. And Jesus had to finish his ministry in Jerusalem. Now, the fact that they are to remain quiet, the fact that this kind of knowledge would have complicated the ministry of Jesus needs to remind us of something. It's easy for us to say, well, no matter what they did, Jesus is God and God is God and God will still get it done. 
You know, sometimes the worst thing you can say to somebody who's going through trouble or going through difficulty or has something that, that bad that might happen to them, the worst thing you can say at that point is, well, you know, God's sovereign. Why are you worried about this? In the, in the immensity of God's sovereignty, what human beings do have real consequences. Saying to somebody, God is sovereign, don't worry about it. It's like inviting a mother not to put her child into, into a proper child restraint seat inside an automobile. Why do you strap your child in? God's sovereign. If God wants to take your child, your child's going to go. If God wants to protect your child, God's going to protect your child. I have heard things like that. It, it distresses me terribly when the sovereignty of God is used as an excuse for not being a responsible human being. Well, I don't need to go share the gospel. God's going to take care of that. You know, if I don't show up on church, that's fine. God's going to take care of that. If I don't help people, that's fine. God's going to take care of that. This idea that you can say God will take care of that off of his sovereignty when there's human responsibility called upon by God is one of the worst heresies there is. The sovereignty of God establishes our responsibilities as believers. Spurgeon would say this again and again and again. It's like an evangelism where people say, well, if you really believe that God is totally sovereign, why would you ever share the gospel? And Spurgeon says, I share the gospel because I know my God is sovereign. He has commanded me to do this, and I know that God's Spirit is going to work, and God's Spirit is going to use the words I share to work in people's lives. I have great confidence in this preaching of the gospel. I have great confidence. Why? Because God is sovereign. Spurgeon always said, and the New Testament always says, that God's sovereignty works with our responsibility in, through, under, and around it in every way. I do not get it fully. I'm almost there. But I don't get it fully. I don't understand it fully. In the same way with respect to prayer. Well, if God already knows everything that he needs to know about me, why do I need to pray? Because God has sovereignly chosen to use your prayers as instruments of what he's going to do. Now, I'm going to give you a, a really mundane example of this. All of us hate water bugs. And we actually know that water bugs is just a nice name to refer to those really big cockroaches. Really big, awful things. My wife is terrified by these things. I saw one the other morning as I took a shower. There it was. It was running on the floor. And I thought, oh my goodness, what am I going to do? And as I started to move toward it, unarmed, <laughs> it ran along the wall underneath the vanity. And I'm going, oh no, it's going to come out when Julie's taking a shower. And I pull the bottom drawer out and look for it and move the bottom drawer back in, and it darts out. And its little antenna go like this, and it sees me, and it runs back in. And I thought, 
the only way I can kill this thing is my normal customary way. I wet a paper towel. And, man, I get it. And I'm standing there thinking, I open the drawer again, shut it, open the drawer again, shut it, open the drawer again, shut it. That thing's not coming back out. There's no way I can do this. And then I stopped and said, Lord God, you, who can control the heart of a king, you can have this cockroach come back out. (laughs) And then immediately I realized, but I'm not prepared yet. So I quickly wet a paper towel. No sooner had I had it folded up and ready to use, that cockroach darts out and I slammed it and got it. Now, I... Does God use prayer? Does God work through the instrumentality of our prayers? A skeptic would say, how do you know your prayer did that? How do you know the animal, just that little bug, wouldn't have crawled out anyway? And my response is this. I ask, God did it. I expected God to do it. Because God is able to do such things. And whether things are big or things are little, God is deeply concerned about our lives. And in my home, it's my job as the husband to protect my wife from bugs. (laughs) I'm going to stop here. The last part just deals with Elijah. We can talk about that in a couple of weeks when when I'm back in the pulpit, but I, I want us to appreciate just find us some lessons here. The transfiguration anchored in Peter, James, and John, anchored in them absolute conviction by the testimony of Moses, by the testimony of Elijah, by the testimony of the voice of God itself. Jesus is who he said he is. And they were going to live that without fail, without doubt, the rest of their lives. The Apostle Paul tells us that same transfiguration experience that they had historically happens with us experientially in terms of our salvation and God working in our hearts. What is it to be a Christian? It's to truly be able to say, I have experienced the glory of God in the face of Christ in my own heart. And I have this treasure in a jar of clay so that no matter whatever the afflictions of life are, I may be attacked but not crushed. I may be struck down, but God is with me. It's the gospel that says it all. Let's pray.
Our Lord and God, this is a passage that we could reflect upon and spend so much time digging out all the treasures of the things that are in it. But we would ask and pray that what you've given us today would encourage us in our lives as believers to walk with you faithfully because of of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and then what you have done in our lives because of who Jesus is. Make us faithful Christians. Uh, Give us boldness in our faith. Enable us to continue to live for Jesus, recognizing that Christians are not people of great power. We are jars of clay. And yet, the all-surpassing greatness of the power to live comes from you. In Jesus' name, amen.